All right, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It's, it's so good to be back. It's been an incredibly long time, even really, and it certainly feels like it's been a long time, so it's particularly great to, to return. I want to thank all of you for being so communicative throughout the summer. I just wanted to make sure everybody knows what's going on. I manage my list, as you know, just because it's much easier than any alternative that I'm aware of. And it's just good that people have been in touch and letting me know that they're coming, all, the, all that good stuff, so thank you. Uh, just on a practical level, which may affect us very drastically. I don't know when or how, but my wife and I, Bezrat Hashem, are in the red zone right now. We're expecting fairly soon. And so, Bezrat When we had our last thing, we were pregnant already, but I wasn't letting anybody know, so I couldn't announce. By the way, stay tuned for the fall. But in the meantime, we are officially in the red zone. It should be, you know, the doctors will tell us in a few weeks, but on the other hand, babies don't always listen to doctors. So we'll see how that all plays out. If I get a phone call in the middle, I will take it. And if I, and if I go out, you will have a memorable she or experience of, of, of why that's all going on. I want to thank the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. I'm its national scholar now since June of 2013, and it's a partnership with KJ that enables these classes to happen. I thank all of you who have joined the Institute. It's, it's really, really meaningful to us that you're part of, our, part, of our, part of our growing family. If you want more information, the, the web address and my email address are always on the source sheets. You could learn more about what we do. But one of the things that we do is this, which is really great. KJ has been a, ho- a wonderful home for the last year and a half or so of our project, and I'm very happy to be able to give these classes through the Institute. We're up to just... For those who were not here last year, you don't have to feel left out. I, my, my job is always, adult education is like this in general. I've been doing it for some time now. And of course, not everybody can come to every single session. So I always read things that if you come to every one, boy, do you gain a lot, or at least I think so. And hopefully you think so too. If you come to one, that's fine. You will gain from that one. It's not that you'll be feeling left out from what happened the week before or the week after. It's just that you won't get the whole flow the way that it is going. But I'm all about whether you've heard this from me or not, is the synthesis between traditional Tanakh learning, traditional Bible learning, that's what I live for, hearing what the voice of the prophets themselves have to say through the lenses of our sages, through the medieval commentators down to the present, but with the synthesis of contemporary scholarship as well. All knowledge is good knowledge as far as I can tell, and I find it important to understand the findings of the history and the language and all the different setting things that you get from the last couple hundred years of contemporary academic scholarship. So I have to read a lot for every one of these shiurim, but to me it's always worth it because then you end up with a much broader picture than if you do one or the other. So that's what I do, and that's what we're going to do. Last year, here's a recap in a nutshell, uh, we started from the book of Joshua, and we just marched right on through Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and the books of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and we did the prophet Jonah, At the very end, that was the final session of last one. If you missed some or all of these, you can go to the website for the Institute of Jewish Ideas for Jewish Ideas and Ideals and hear all 20 shirim. They're all there. All you have to do is go online to the website there and click on online learning, and bam, you will find it with all the source sheets, and that's a great way of catching up or making up the ones that you missed. So you don't have to feel that you're behind in any sense. You always can get that information. So what that brings us to is a book called The Twelve Minor Prophets. In Hebrew, it's called Treasar. That's not really Hebrew. That's the Aramaic term. It's really Shnemasar. But all the same, we, we call it Treasar most commonly. It's the 12, 12 prophets. Some people call it the 12 minor prophets. The reason why they're minor has nothing to do with their significance. It has to do with the fact that the books are short. In fact, it's 12 different books that were squished together into a scroll for the simple reason that back in the good old days, people were afraid that if you didn't bond them all together in one scroll, some of them might really get lost. 
Uh, it was a practical matter that they ended up, ended up being shoved into one scroll. But it's 12 separate books, each with a life of its own. Jonah is one of those 12. That's the one we did last time. And now we're up to the 8th century. The way that we're doing these is through chronology, because as you will quickly find out if you don't remember from last year, I'm very interested in the historical setting of the prophets because these were real people who lived in real times and have messages that were relevant to their generation and for all time. So the two people in play today are Hosea and Amos. They lived in the 8th century BCE. 8th century BCE, just to give you the historical setting, has two kingdoms in Israel. You have the northern kingdom that's called the kingdom of Israel. And you have the southern kingdom of Judah. The temple is located in Jerusalem and Judah. And they are split. They've been split since post-King Solomon. We, we Jews have had a hard time staying together from the very beginning. At one point that I like to make all the time is that Tanakh teaches us time and again. Tanakh is the Hebrew acronym for the Bible. Tanakh teaches us time and again that we Jews are excellent at running other people's governments, but we have a really tough time governing ourselves. And and that's really one message that keeps on coming up again and again and again in a very real way. And that happened then too. The kingdom split as a result of all kinds of complications. And bam, so here we have two monarchies, 12 tribes. And these two monarchies sometimes have peace with each other. Sometimes they're marrying each other, which is good for peace, bad for religion sometimes. Sometimes they really hate each other. Occasionally they're even at battles. Right now, in the 8th century BCE, something is happening. We're experiencing in the land of Israel, both north and south, what scholars refer to as the silver age of of biblical Israel. You can't call it the golden age because the golden age is already taken. The golden age is David and Solomon. That was the best. That's when you have a united monarchy. It's peaceful. It's wealthy. Everybody is religious. The temple is built. It's as good as it ever has gotten, and it's as good as it will get until the Messianic era. It never will be better than that prior to the Messiah. It was really, really good. The Silver Age was sort of like that. It's just that now the kingdom is divided, and they're not as powerful as they were in the times of David and Solomon. You find, if you read the Book of Kings, that the northern kings were busy expanding rapidly. They were regaining lost territory, and the same thing with the southern kings. The king of the north was a man named Yoravam, not to be confused with the founder of the northern kingdom, who also was named Yoravam, a different guy, different dynasty. And he was king for a whopping 41 years, becoming the all-time record holder for the north. Down south, simultaneously, you had another king called Uziah, or Uziahu, or Azariah, he has all kinds of variants of the same name, Uziahu. He was king of the south, and he ended up reigning for a whopping 52 years. Also an amazing new record. Now, it's not a coincidence that you have two kings breaking records and peace, and prosperity, and military gain, and all that good stuff. There's a reason for all of this. Tanakh doesn't tell you the reason. If you read the Bible, you find out that the reason why the North is doing well is because God feels bad for the North. Poor, poor North. They have no friends. God has pity on them, so he lets them win a couple of battles before they get squashed by the Assyrians. Okay, very sweet. The South is expanding. We don't even know why. Uziah is righteous, but that's not the cause given for the expansion. It's just that there is expansion. Okay. But historians will tell us from the ancient records that we now have a very good reason why things are so wonderful in Israel. And that is a man named Adad Nirari III. I don't want to bless him because I'm sure that I can't stand him. But at least at that moment, he was doing good things for the Jews. Not because he was helping Israel. He didn't care about Israel at all yet. He was clobbering the country Aram, which is today's Syria. He was whopping them over on the east. The Assyrians were beating up on Aram. And Aram, who had been beating up on us, realized, okay, we're tiny, they're huge. 
let's move all of our soldiers away from Israel on the western flank and defend our eastern flank, which is being attacked by the Assyrians. See, that was good for Israel because that means that our biggest foe was gone. And that gave these kings peace, prosperity, a chance to expand, regain territory, because nobody was bothering us. And that led to the Silver Age. The good news is, that means we had a Silver Age. The bad news is, the people of Israel, for the most part, became the nouveau riche types, became very arrogant with their newfound wealth. They, we have plenty of these, there's no reason why anybody shouldn't have a source sheet. Here we go, there's a pile, yeah, there we go. And let me give you a pile for this direction. Here we go. Thank you so much. Welcome back. What ended up happening is, even before credit cards were invented, essentially these nouveau riche people didn't know how to manage their finances. They started buying these incredible ivory inlays for their homes, expensive stuff, jewels galore, fancy clothing, all the rich, all the rich stuff. And they ran up their credit card bills too high. <laughs> That's what really was going on. Without credit cards, that's, that's really what was happening. Okay, so when you run up your credit cards too high in the ancient world, what you do to pay off your debt is you don't get another credit card. You sell fellow Israelites who are poor into slavery. It's a great way to make money on the side. The prophets were horrified. The prophets couldn't believe that this was happening. That Israelites are selling fellow Israelites into slavery sending them off to Greece, and I mean, there was a huge slave market back then, it was easy to make some cash, oppressing the poor, taking their stuff, they were totally downtrodden, defenseless, and the rich simply stomped all over them. The prophets went ballistic, and the two prophets at the head of this charge were Amos up in the north, one of tonight's heroes, and Isaiah down in the south, who we spoke about last year. These two prophets couldn't believe that this was happening, and they said, you don't get this. You're trashing the poor right now, and you think everything is going to be fine. Well, let me tell you something. Those Assyrians over yonder, right now they're beating up on Aram. They're not bothering us. They're beating up on today's Syria. But you see, once Syria is out of the way, they're going to be at our doorstep. And if we don't shape up our act now, before the Assyrians get here, the Assyrians are going to be a problem that you never, ever saw before. Yes, we've had enemies all through our history. We had them then, too. But the Assyrians are different. The Assyrians will be way more destructive and way more powerful and potent than anything the people of Israel have ever imagined before. And unfortunately, as often is the case with prophets, people ignored the prophets and continued to run up their credit card bills and continued to do what they're doing. And one of their primary arguments that's really interesting is like, hey, we bring sacrifices to God. God will protect us. We serve God properly. And the prophets, of course, said, "Um, no, it doesn't work that way sacrifices in ancient Israel are not that God needs meat. It's not a barter system where you give God his meat and now he's happy. It's quite to the opposite. God demands that as part of a religious lifestyle, which includes moral behavior. If you're not moral, God doesn't want the sacrifices. In fact, he despises them. This was a message that prophets unfortunately had to keep on giving. And today, if prophets were alive, even without animal sacrifice, they'd say the same thing. There's no such thing as a religious person who is immoral. Right? Because guess what? We still have to deal with that same issue. We haven't learned very much. Some people have, but a lot of people sure haven't. So the prophets back then were fighting the same fight that we unfortunately need to fight now sometimes, which is there's absolutely no, day, there's no daylight between religious and truly ethical behavior as understood through the Torah. So that's what Amos was all about. Really. He was about battling against the terrible injustice. 
Amos' contemporary in the north in 8th century BCE in Israel, in the northern kingdom, was Hosea, and we're going to start with him. He is one of the most supreme romantic prophets ever. So I like him. I like romantics. What can I tell you? I'm a sucker for them. Hosea really played up the marriage imagery between God and Israel in a way that nobody had done before. The Torah mentions it briefly in passing. It's not foreign to earlier texts, but Hosea really goes for it. As far as he is concerned, he's not even paying so much attention to the immoral behavior that I just mentioned to you. That's Amos' job. Hosea's job is the people of Israel are, in this marriage equation, God is the husband, Israel is the wife. Israel is a horrible wife and has cheated on God through her idolatry. And what you see in the book of Hosea, which is where we're now going, is a heartbroken deity. You really feel God's anguish, pain, anger, and at the same time, love. When you're heartbroken, that means you still love the person, right? In other words, you feel betrayed. You feel something really is not right. You might not even be able to keep the marriage going. But at the same time, God is filled with love for the people of Israel. And you sense that very palpably in this book. And so we begin with source number one, the very opening of the book of Hosea. Everybody has pages by now because I still have, I always have an emergency backup supply. I'm very good about that kind of stuff. I make sure that they make enough for everybody on my list, knowing that it's very unlikely for all the people on the list to show up at the same week. So that way, okay, I have extras, but I want to make sure that everybody who's here gets. Here comes Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Be'eri, in the reigns of King Uziah, that's the Uziah who I mentioned before, by the way, Yotam, Achaz, and Chizkiah of Yehudah, and in the reign of King Jeroboam, the son of Yoash of Israel, that's the king that I mentioned before as well. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go get yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom, for the land will stray from following the Lord. This is easily one of the most astounding things that you're not going to teach fourth graders. <laughs> but not just fourth graders. It's great. Some of our greatest commentators were scandalized by this sentence. Because after all, we think of prophets as the most saintly religious people ever. These people have a very profound relationship with God. And how in the world is God going to tell a prophet to go ahead and marry a wife of whoredom? Which most medieval commentators understood to mean a prostitute. But really what it's about anyway, whether or not whatever her job was beforehand, what matters is that she is going to cheat on him in the marriage. That's what matters in the analogy, much more than whatever she did prior. So Ibn Ezra, for example, the great 12th century commentator in Spain and other places, and Rambam following in his footsteps say, God couldn't do this. There are certain things that God cannot do, and that includes foolish things and scandalous things. As far as they are concerned, it is impossible, even though it says that God commanded Hosea to do it, and even though it says that Hosea did it, and even has three kids with this woman. They say, that all happened in a prophecy. It didn't happen in real life. Meaning, if we took a time machine back, we would find Hosea in his bed or on the floor or wherever he was where he got prophecy. And we would not meet this woman, and we would never see any three kids. They didn't exist in real life. And other commentators are scandalized back, saying, what are you talking about? If the biblical text says it happened... That's what happened, like it or not. And the point is that God is trying to send an extreme visual aid to shock the people into letting them realize what they have done. What better way to do it than to have Hosea struggling with his own marriage problems as a metaphor for what God is going through with the people of Israel. So Barbanel, who loves Ibn Ezra and Rambam, but not on this, he he comes out fists flying and just says very nasty things 
saying, how dare they make up a rule that if they are bothered by something, therefore it didn't happen. So I'm going with the plain sense of the text, which is it seems like it really did happen. But if you're more comfortable that it didn't, you have very good grounds to stand on. Okay, so verse 2 again. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go get yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom, for the land will stray from following the Lord. So he went and married Gomer, son of Divlaim. She conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord instructed him, Name him Yisrael, for I will soon punish the house of Yehu for the bloody deeds at Yisrael and put an end to the monarchy of the house of Israel. And that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Yisrael. Complicated background, not worth going into in a short survey course like this. But, you know, there was a king named Yehu who eliminated Baal, which is good. Baal was the Canaanite storm god, and the people of Israel went astray after Baal for a while. But now, he still left behind golden calves that, the, that King Jeroboam I had put in the northern kingdom, and they had been there ever since. So as far as God is concerned, the northern kings are all illegitimate because of these golden calves. That's what he's saying over here, that the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to fall as a consequence of that. Verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and he said to him, Name her Lo-Ruchama, which means no more compassion for you. For I will no longer accept the house of Israel or pardon them, but I will accept the house of Judah, and I will give them victory through the Lord their God. I will not give them victory with bow and, bow and sword and, and battle by horses and riders. Okay. Point is that the second child, the girl here, Lo-Ruchama, means that God no longer will have compassion on the northern kingdom of Israel, meaning doom is coming. And then finally, the third one, which is the most extreme, verse 8. After weaning Lo-Ruchama, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, he said, Name him Lo-Ami, which means not my nation, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. First of all, these poor kids when they went to kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, roll call comes up, and this is, these are their names. On a more practical level, obviously, these are symbolic names that convey Israel's imminent fate. First, the dynasty of Yehu is going to fall, and then the whole northern kingdom is going to collapse because God has rejected them for their adulterous behavior. So it's a horrifying series of prophecies, and honestly, this is really where you get to understand the nature of what it means to be the chosen people. Chosenness is conditional on good behavior, faithfulness to the Torah. And what you hear now is the opposite of that. Since the people have gone astray, they've broken their covenant with God, God says, okay, that's it. Lo ami, you're no longer my people. Now the question comes up, not only in the book of Hosea, but throughout the whole Bible, granting that point, that chosenness is conditional, well, when God rejects Israel, as God is doing so right now, is it a separation or a divorce? And the prophets use this terminology. I'm not trying to impose that onto the text. Is it a separation, meaning is this essentially rehab, with the hope of returning the marriage once Israel gets her act together? Or is it a divorce, meaning a permanent break between God and Israel, which is never going to be restored. And the prophets are very clear about that answer, which is, fortunately, uh, it's a separation. Like, yeah. It's a metaphor, just like the hoarding of the wife. Perhaps the separation from Israel is also a metaphor, like that. Yeah, but, but, but here it's talking about exile. In other words, the point is that the exile of the northern tribes of Israel, which is imminent in this time, God is saying that's the end of the relationship, but it's not really. God, God longs for the restoration of that. that. So it's more than a metaphor. There's a tangible thing that's going to happen within a generation of these two prophets. Namely, the Assyrians are going to come and exile what we know as the ten lost tribes. Right? They're going to be exiled w within the lifetime of Hosea. It's plausible that Hosea was exiled at that time. He was alive during King Chizkiah, who was the king 
of the South when that happened. Didn't he be breaking the promise to Abraham besides if he uh, it was important? That's part of it. That's a, what you're saying is the reason underlying the whole thing. Yeah, it's exactly. an eternal covenant, but simultaneously there is a conditional aspect to it. Okay. So that's chapter one. Then you jump down to chapter to source number two, which is also, by the way, chapter two. And right away you get to see that it's a separation and not a divorce. And here you get to see a heartbroken deity. But first you get to see the optimism, the hope that comes from prophets. The number of the people of Israel shall be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And instead of being told, you are not my people, they shall be called children of the living God. This prophets do this all the time, but here it's very stark. Prophets use their own terminology and reverse it. So he's saying, instead of being low on me, instead of being not my nation, you will be now children of the living God. And by the way, there's a trick that Hosea is doing, and this goes back to what Sherry was saying. There are different metaphors that, going back to Isaac's point, of the God-Israel relationship. Sometimes it's a very fearful one. God is the king, and we are the subjects. Or God is the master, and we are the servants. Right? Where God is the absolute boss, and we're here to serve him. Then you have the loving ones, where God is the husband, like over here, and we're the wife. But sometimes God is the parent, usually father, but there are places where mother, right? And we're the children. You understand the fundamental difference between marriage and parenthood. Parenthood, no matter how rotten that kid is, it's still your kid. There's nothing you can do to change that status. It's permanent. And that's your point. So that's what he's saying over here. By invoking children imagery... In this context, he's saying this relationship is, in, is going to endure no matter what. Because you might be rotten kids right now, but you're always my children. That's something that cannot stop. Even if a marriage could stop it, the parent-child relationship never, ever can. And that's a metaphor that runs through the book of Hosea in particular because he's grappling with God's rejection of the northern kingdom because of their idolatry. Verse 2. The people of Judah and the people of Israel shall assemble together and appoint one head over them. And they shall rise from the ground, for marvelous shall be the day of Israel, which is undoing the Israel child, right? Oh, call your brothers my people, meaning Ami, instead of Lo Ami, and your sisters lovingly accepted, meaning Ruchama, instead of Lo Ruchama. So he's using the names of his own, well, they're not symbolic children, they're real children, symbolic names. He's using the symbolic names of his children and flipping them around, saying that now, no more compassion, blood of Israel, you're not my nation. But in the future, there's going to be one united Israel once again. And this time there will be good Israel. You'll be planted in your land. There will be compassion again. You will be my nation again. And this is all part of the separation, not divorce. But for now, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. And he goes on and on, expressing the absolute horror. Now, verse 12, will I uncover her shame in the very sight of her lovers? Here's a vindictive husband. He's furious that his wife has cheated. And he's saying, I'm going to really show her up and shame her for her terrible behavior. None shall save her from me. And I will end all her rejoicing, her festivals, new moons and Sabbaths, all their festive seasons. Thus I will punish her for the days of the Baalim. Again, Baal was the Canaanite storm god that they also worshipped. On which she brought them offerings. When, decked with earrings and jewels, she would go after her lovers, forgetting me, declares the Lord. So which deity did the people serve that Hosea is blasting them? Baal, you're absolutely right. That's what verse 15 is all about, right? The lovers, that's referring to the adulterous lovers. Baal, they're keeping the Baal holidays. But read verse 13 also. We just read it, but read it again. 
festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, festive seasons. Who are they serving over there? That's, that's our God. In other words, on their Apple Bank calendars that they had back then, they actually had on all the calendars the Jewish holidays and all the Baal holidays, and they kept all of them. Eliyahu, but yes, I was just about to, you're right, and I was about to invoke exactly that thing. The prophet Elijah, or Eliyahu, was definitely my daughter's all-time favorite prophet. They're bonkers. I just told them that story yesterday, actually. At dinner, I tried to tell them a little, we've gone through Tanakh twice in the last year. You just keep on going, and so Eliyahu is their big-time favorite, because how could he not be? He uh, yelled at the people, how could you be hopping between these two branches? What's your problem? Either serve Baal or serve God, but don't How do you do both? And the answer is that not everybody back then was a theologian. Everybody was a farmer. When you're a farmer, what you need around here is rain. All right, so think about this. The Torah tells us the way you get rain is you serve God properly and never worship other idols. Check. Serve God. The prophets of Baal came in in the 9th century at the time of Elijah the prophet and started saying, well, Baal is the god of rain here, so you have to serve Baal. Uh Uh-oh. Farmers are like, what am I going to do? I know I need rain. The prophets of God are saying you need to serve God. The prophets of Baal are saying you need to serve Baal. I know, we'll just serve everybody with the hopes that whoever is really in charge of rain gives us rain. So Elijah, of course, is scandalized for the very reason that any prophet would be. Namely, our God doesn't tolerate that. That's idolatry. It doesn't matter if you're also serving God. So we have to understand, for most ancient Israelites, idolatry did not mean abandoning God. It meant adding pagan worship to God. Worship. But they did both. They did to whom it may concern. We're going to serve everybody here. We're going to keep all the holidays. And, we're going to, and that's what we're going to do. Now, you know how they say a picture, don't worry about it. A picture is worth a thousand words. Well, this picture is worth way more than that. Watch this. If you go to the back of your source pages... There's a pottery shard found in northern Israel from the, I think it's from the 9th century BCE, right around the time of Elijah. If you look at the bottom of the page there, it actually worked. I scanned it in. Here they have it. Bam, it worked. And there's an inscription on it in ancient, ancient Hebrew writing. And it says to yud Hey vav Hey, which is our God, and his Asherah. Asherah was one of the fertility goddesses of the time. They saw no contradiction whatsoever in such a terrible picture, or in such a terrible idea, that our God, the God of Israel, yud heh vav yud we would say, with a pagan deity, and that was totally cool to them, which is why the poor prophets were going bananas. It's like, don't you get it? Our God doesn't do this. Our God doesn't tolerate this at all. And that's what Hosea is dealing with also. Hosea is dealing with the same problem. He's saying... You can't have pottery that says this, because it's not just the pottery, it's that they actually believed in this stuff. They really were hedging in every way that they could. Yeah. In fact, by hedging like that, what do you say, you know, this guy doesn't find, or that does, so the design. You know, that shows to me, they really had no belief at all, because it was going to walk back and forth. What do you believe is no follow-up of God? Right, so, correct, so that was Elijah's point of view, which is the correct point of view, but on the other hand, I'm just trying to explain where they're coming from, I'm certainly not trying to justify it, but yeah. So after God vents away and says he's going to smash them and humiliate them and banish them from the house and all these other things, then suddenly verse 16, a sudden turnaround. Now we're back on page 2. 
Assuredly, I will speak coaxingly to her and lead her through the wilderness and speak to her tenderly. All of a sudden, God the Romantic comes out. As much as God wants to punish Israel, as much as he wants to banish her, he also really loves her and wants a good relationship with her. I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor into the plowland, plowland of hope. Right? Then she shall respond as in the days of her youth when she came up from the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me Ishi and no more Baali. So on a simple reason, it's actually very curious. The name Baal, people of Israel used to name their children something Baal. Right, Yerubal, but even King Saul, his son's name was Eshbal, which means Baal exists. He wasn't a Baal worshiper. He believed that our God exists. And Baal just means Lord. It exactly means the same thing as Adonai. So it was a perfectly, perfectly acceptable nickname in ancient Israel before the 9th century BCE to refer to our God as Baal. But once the Canaanite storm god Baal kind of took over the north, that was it. Baal became a dirty word. Which is why the authors of the biblical books actually just rewrote certain things. Like Eshbal, the son of King Saul, he became renamed Ishbosheth, son of shame. King Saul never named his kids son of shame. Nobody called him that. If you went behind, snuck up behind him on the street and said, hey, Ishbosheth, he wouldn't even turn around. Unless he was wondering what kind of bizarre, who, who would call a name like that? A man of shame. Nobody was called that. He wasn't called that at all. The editors, the prophetic editors of the Bible, wrote out the word Baal, because it was embarrassing to them that King Saul had a son, something Baal. Okay? So what God is saying on a simple level here is that from now on you will call me Ishi means my husband, my man. And you will no longer call me Baali, my, my master. Maharal, the Maharal of Prague in the 16th century, he says there's another component to this. That, of course, Baal also comes with lordship, that God is the superior. The point of Ishi is that now it's Ish Isha, it's going to be more egalitarian. The God-Israel relationship is going to involve both sides taking responsibility for the relationship rather than the husband doing all the work and the woman kind of towing a certain line. Right? So that's how Maharal understood this verse. That Baal, Lord, is is definitely the the predominant figure, but Ish, Isha, it's a way of saying that they're on an equal plane, that they're actually going to have a much more mutual relationship in the future. Yes, very well said, and yes, it's a restoration meaning beyond, going back to Miriam's point, it's beyond a better state of what it is now. It's not just not doing bad, it's going back to the very beginnings. Absolutely correct. In that day, I already read that, verse 19, For I will remove the names of Baalim from her mouth, and she will never more be mentioned by name. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. I will also banish bow, sword, and war from the land. Thus I will let them lie down in safety, and I will espouse you forever. I will espouse you with righteousness and justice, with goodness and mercy, and I will espouse you with faithfulness, and then you shall be devoted to the Lord. It's a beautiful, beautiful prophecy. It's God, romantic par excellence, just longing for a deep and true relationship, marriage relationship with the people of Israel. So that's where you get to see that it was a separation, not a divorce. And God knows that one day we will get back to the, even not just get back to, but I think Miriam's correct. We'll have a better relationship than we ever did when that future comes. And then, you know, just a, fi- a final thing, 23. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the sky, and it shall respond to the earth, and the earth shall respond to new grain and wine and oil, and they shall respond to Israel. I will sow her in the land as my own, take lo ruchama back in favor, and I will say, lo ami, you are my people, and he will respond, you are my God. So in other words, the symbolic names of the children loop around once again for this restoration. 
So that's Hosea chapters 1 and 2, which really form the fundamental part of the book. But if you look at source 3 on the next page, the very last chapter we actually read on the Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which already feels like a very long time ago. But that, that at least chronologically is a little closer. Very last chapter, Shuvah Yisrael, right? Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have fallen because of your sin. He who is wise will consider these words. He who is prudent will take note of them. For the paths of the Lord are smooth and the righteous can walk in on them while sinners still stumble on them. If you read it in a vacuum, it sounds like a standard prophetic. Hey, everybody, you're sinning, repent. Because that's what he's saying, right? But if you read it in the context of the book, this is God's ongoing proposal. Now, what we read between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, if you know this chapter in the context of the book, here you have this heartbroken but always longing God, longing for Israel to come back. So it's much more than just repent ye sinners. It's not a repent ye sinners tone at all. It's very much God is saying, you know, if you will just repent, we'll be able to restore that ideal marriage that I've longed for from the very beginning. So that's the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is all about the intimate relationship between God and Israel, played up in the metaphor primarily of a marriage. Israel went astray because of her idolatry. God, on the one hand, is going to exile Israel because of that. There's going to be a terrible separation, a cataclysmic one. But at the same time, God's arms are eternally open for the people of Israel to come back. And that's what we continue to read when we read the prophet Hosea in in our liturgy. Yeah, Isaac? If Shuvah needed, it's not clear, is repentance needed for God to take us back? Or will God take us back unconditionally? Depends on which prophet you ask, and, and the Talmud plays these prophets off each other. Now they have a circular argument over do we need to repent first in order to be taken back, or will God take us back and redeem us anyway? And then we would repent because that's just the right thing to do at that stage in the game. Fabulous debate in the Talmud. But what they do is they sling verses at each other which just say, send different messages. So that's that. That is the prophet Hosea, in a nutshell, obviously. And now we get to the prophet Amos. Now, it's amazing that Amos and Hosea are contemporaries, talking to the same people in the northern kingdom of Israel, same time period, but they have almost no commonality at all. Amos, here's a stark way to say it, but it's really the best way to describe something different. If you ask Hosea, which god do you believe in? What would he say? I believe in Adonai. I believe in the personal God of Israel, and I, have an, and I believe in the intimate relationship between God and Israel. If you ask Amos, which God do you believe in? I believe in Elohim, the creator God, the transcendent, of course it's the same God, but a very different manifestation. Amos, Amos's God is very distant, created the entire humanity, and demands morality from the entire humanity. Hosea is all about the God-Israel relationship. He's not focused on the world at all. Amos focuses on Israel as a nation within the community of world nations. In fact, Amos is the only prophet who starts his book. It's not in the source sheets, but chapter one is, because of the sins of this nation, God is upset and punishment will happen. Because of the sins of that nation, God is upset, punishment will happen. So on and so forth. It's a roster of seven different nations that God is going to smite as a consequence of their immoral behavior. And that's just the Elohim God. That's the, that's the God who created all humanity, and God has demands of all humanity. And then, yeah, sorry, Sue? Do we know anything about the biographies of the two men uh, that might lead them to have such different ideas? We know nothing whatsoever other than what's in the books. So, no. And it, it, some of it could just be personality, right? Different prophets might react to different realities. In other words, what was happening at that time was idolatry and immorality. 
you and I would be scandalized by both of them. But Amos' specialty was immorality. That's what really got on his case, and he spewed a lot of venom against uh, immorality. Hoshea was heartbroken with God about the idolatry. He mentions immorality, but that's not his big-time concern. His big-time concern is the idolatry and the betrayal of God. So why that should be so, I don't know. We, we don't have any biogra- biographical material at all. Now, you should know that's something that makes Amos an absolute revolutionary. We all know, or we should, what I mentioned before, that the Torah demands religious behavior, and that includes how we relate to our God and how we relate to other people. That's all part of the religion. We never separated these things. They're essential aspects of the religion from the very beginning. It's all in the Ten Commandments. You name it, it's there. Okay. But, but, when you read the Torah, when you talk about what will lead to God's rejection of Israel through exile, well, that's all about idolatry. If you oppress the poor, that's horrible. It's breaking all kinds of mitzvot. But God never says, if you do that, you will get exiled. What it's about is, if you worship idols, then you will get exiled. That's the final stage of rejection. If you go through the early, what we call the early books of the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, especially Kings, it's all about the idolatry, which is just in, completely in sync with the Torah. The assumption is, idolatry is what breaks the relationship between God and Israel. Other things can be damaging. God hates immorality. But you don't get a sense that Israel's national fate is hinged on morality. Uh, Moses, the very first prophet in our history, here in the 8th century BCE, who flips it around and says, no, you know what? Our national fate is hinged on morality also. And in fact, Amos says that the reason why Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, will be exiled is because of its immorality, not idolatry. In fact, he never mentions idolatry in the whole book. There was idolatry. How do I know? Because read Hosea. There's plenty of idolatry going on. He doesn't mention idolatry at all. His focus is entirely on the immoral behavior of the rich oppressing the poor. And what I most did, it's the last day of the baseball season, regardless of how it turns out. But I still think like a pitcher. And so Amos's rhetoric basically is just, if you know baseball, you understand this. If you don't, don't worry about it. You'll still understand what I'm saying. Uh, a good strategy, which pitchers do all the time, is throw outside pitches that the hitter has to lean in. And once he's leaning in like more and expecting you to throw even more outside, that's when you bust him inside with a fastball, right? That's what you're supposed to do. And unless he guesses that you were going to do that, and then he puts it over the left field fence, and that's just bad. But in the meantime, Amos repeatedly does that. Where he says things that he knows that people are going to want to hear. And they're going to be like, yeah, here's a prophet we actually like listening to, unlike all the other ones, right? And they all tune up their ears, and then he gets them. It's really awesome. So he does that in the beginning by saying how all these surrounding nations, which were enemy nations, are going to get clobbered. And you can just imagine Amos going to the shuk, Saying Ammon is going down. The guy who's buying the chickens is like, whoa, here's a prophet who's saying that Ammon is going down instead of us. I want to listen to, hey, get over here, put down those eggs, let's go listen to this man. Moab is going down, Edom is going down, the Philistines. And then the seventh, the climactic seventh, was the southern kingdom of Judah. You can imagine those northerners high-fiving each other saying, yeah, you see, they've been saying all along that they're the legitimate dynasty, they have the temple. Look at this, here's a prophet saying, the kingdom of Judah is wicked and is going down. We're the real deal. So that, he has them way leaning over the plate. Okay, so I already know what Amos is going to do, but boy, oh boy, were those people in the Shukin for a big surprise. Then Amos turns it around and says, I know the biblical number is seven, and the seventh was Judah. So everybody thinks that's the climax. Oh, but Amos decided to do an eighth. 
And that eighth was none other, of course, than the kingdom of Israel. And that we get to verse uh, source four. Thus said the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, for four I will not revoke it, because they have sold for silver those whose cause was just, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Here they are, as I mentioned before, with the credit card bills. They want to pay off a pair of shoes. They got fancy, fancy, they have those then too. Really expensive shoes that cost money. We don't have enough money, don't worry, we'll sell our neighbor into slavery. And then we have our shoes. And that's what they were doing. It was appalling. It was appalling. By the way, here's another way. What I most liked doing, I mean, he didn't like it. He hated this because it was miserable. But what he repeatedly does is he has to undo the assumptions of the people. Let's all be shallow theologians for just a moment, shall we? It's always fun to, to do that. Some people seem to enjoy it, right? We don't, but some people do. Let's be shallow theologians. All right, let's think about this for a minute. If some people are rich and other people are poor, who does God love more? The answer is the rich ones. If you're a shallow theologian, it's the rich ones. Right? You know who are really good shallow theologians? The Philistines. The Philistines, when they come to Abraham Avinu, Abraham our forefather, and they say, God is with you, they're not thinking about his prophetic life. They're thinking about the fact that he owns a lot of sheep. So to them, God is with you. God is smiling on you. Right? Well, you know what? The ancient Israelites in the 8th century BCE, they all thought that too. The rich folk thought, well, evidently, God loves us and hates these poor folks. So if we oppress them, that's fine. Right? That's really how they thought. So Amos, in this verse over that we just read, right? Because they have sold for silver the cause who is just. Cause who is just in Hebrew is tzaddik. That's the Hebrew word. So who is the righteous one? It's the poor person. Right? In other words, Amos is, just by using this word, by referring to all poor people as righteous, the truth of the matter is, poor people are allowed to be wicked too. Right? It's not always the rich folk who are horrible, and rich folk are allowed to be good also. I know some. Right? It, 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 it's okay. It can be done. But Amos completely goes this route. He's basically turning on its ear the concept that a poor person is a righteous person. There's a Hebrew word, anav. What does anav mean with an ayin? Humble. That word etymologically, linguistically, is probably related to the word ani. What is ani? A poor person. Meaning the Hebrew language reflects this sense, even though it doesn't have to be this way, that a humble, righteous person and poor person are linked. That's prophetic language for you. Again, if you ask Amos, are all poor people really righteous? He would say, no. Are all rich people really horrible? No. Amos wouldn't really fall into that trap either. But Amos is going after the rich people who are oppressing the poor. And to do that, he uses the language that the poor people themselves are tzadikim. They're the righteous ones and they're the humble ones. So now he goes after them some more. Verse 7. Ah, you who trample the heads of the poor into the dust of the ground and make the humble a walk a twisted course. Father and son go to the same girl and thereby profane my holy name. They recline by every altar on garments taken in pledge and drink in the house of their God wine bought with the fines they impose. Notice, they're serving our God. They're bringing sacrifices to our God. Amos is not condemning idolatry here. But he's saying that what are they feasting on? Money of corruption. You know, there's a law that if you take a collateral from a poor person as one garment, you have to return it to him, even though the law should have been, you can hold it until he pays back his debt. But the Torah is sympathetic to somebody who has so little of a wardrobe, so you're supposed to return his clothing. Okay, that's the law. So what these guys are doing is sacrificing, and then, you know, back, back then they reclined. They didn't sit in chairs. So 
they recline on these garments that they are obligated to return. That's how gross they are. So they think, oh, look, we're serving God in our temple, and these guys owe us money so we can keep their clothing. God is saying this is absolutely appalling. Verse 9, Yet I destroyed the Amorite before them, that's a synonym for the Canaanites, whose stature was like the cedars, and who was stout as the oak, destroying his boughs above and be, above and the trunk below. And I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you through the wilderness 40 years to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up prophets from among your sons, Nazarites from among your young men. Is it that not so, O people of Israel, said the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and order the prophets not to prophesy. Here God is doing everything he possibly can to help the people of Israel. He's done a lot of amazing, amazing things for them. But they are ingrates. He sent them wonderful teachers. But they not only ignore the teachers, but they corrupt the teachers. They really try to stop the voices of the prophets, the voices of the Nazarites, who obviously played some role. And David? Now verse 12, who's talking to whom? It's God through Amos. So you equals you, the Israelites. Right? In other words, this is the prophetic message that Amos is speaking to the people on God's behalf. He's the, he's the spokesman for God. So the point is that God is the speaker. God is saying, I took you out of Egypt. I gave you these wonderful teachers. But you, the people, really ruined everything by shutting it down and by being ungrateful. And then the subtext, which is not so sub, you know, besides the fact that you're ungrateful about the land, besides the fact that you are ignoring your teachers that I'm sending you, well, what happened to the Canaanites? They were exiled from this land because they were bad. And guess what, folks? You know, that, that's the, the not-so-subtle message that God is putting through Amos over here. The whole point is whenever Canaanites are invoked as a parallel to the people of Israel, that means Israel is in a lot of trouble. Because what God told them from the very get-go is living in the land of Israel is an absolute privilege. But the land of Israel itself cannot tolerate immoral behavior. The Canaanites were terrible people. Okay, so they had to go. But God reminded the Israelites, don't think you're such hotshots. If you fall into that trap, well, then you have to go. There's no, the land of Israel won't tolerate you any better. The northern Israelites, don't forget, at this stage in Israel's history, we never were exiled. We had never experienced exile at this point. Right, from the time of Joshua entering the land, there might be some Israelites who live outside of the land at this point, but it's in the minority, and probably most of the ones who did were doing it for business. Right? You just got involved in the trade routes. I'm sure there was a lot of money in that. So some people might have gone as individuals. But you had no tribal exile to this point. So when Amos is coming at them and threatening divine exile within a generation, that was absolutely shocking and for most people literally unbelievable. They simply did not believe him. They didn't think it would happen. So what if the Torah says that it would happen? But Amos is saying, we're just like the Canaanites in that regard. And in fact, he hurls the chosen people concept at them also in Source 5. Hear this word, O people of Israel, that the Lord has spoken concerning you, concerning the whole family that I brought up from the land of Egypt. You alone have I singled out of all the families of the earth. And once again, you can just hear the people saying, we are so chosen. I like this man. Right? That's what they're thinking, because it's another outside pitch. So having him leaning over the plate. That is why I will call you to account for all your iniquities. Ah, busted. You're more responsible as a consequence of that. You know better. And you're, when you behave like Canaanites, you're worse than the Canaanites who behaved like Canaanites. Canaanites grew up that way. They were rotten people. They had to go. But you have a covenant with God, with moral laws, and you've chosen this route. That is an absolute disaster. If you were to interview northern Israelites in the 8th century, 
hey guys, what's your state of affairs? They would tell you without even blinking, well look, we're experiencing what later scholars will call the Silver Age of Israel. God loves us. We're rich. There's prosperity. There's political stability. We're regaining all the lands we lost. Our lands now are as great as they were in the times of David and Solomon, which they were. We're doing great. We have no imminent threat. Aram, which was our biggest headache for a few generations, they're off to the east battling with the Assyrians. Not our problem. We're doing fine. So as far as we're concerned, God is smiling on us big time. Plus, we're rich. You know, if you're interviewing the rich folk, God obviously loves us very personally. Yes, he doesn't love everybody in our society. There's some poor folk. Okay, so we'll sell them into slavery to pay our bills. But he certainly loves us. Plus, we're the chosen people. God loves us anyway. And when we hear that our enemies are going to be destroyed, fantastic. Couldn't come soon enough. In one of the passages that's not in your source sheets, in chapter 5, the people were actually marking their calendar and saying, we can't wait for Yom Hashem to come, the day of the Lord. Yom Hashem, biblically speaking, is any time that God is manifest in some way and clobbers bad guys. The flood, Noah's flood, that was a big time Yom Hashem. Lots of bad guys got clobbered, okay? Ten plagues, big time. All of those things where God is manifest and God clobbers bad guys and then the good guys are redeemed or helped as a consequence of that. That's a Yom Hashem. Well, the people in Amos' time, they prayed for Yom Hashem, a day of the Lord, all the time. So Amos comes to them and says, you fools. You don't want a Yom Hashem, because when Yom Hashem comes, that's when God is manifest and bad people are harmed. You're bad. It will hurt when Yom Hashem happens. You don't want this to come. You don't get it. They understood Yom Hashem to mean when God punishes Israel's enemies. And what, the, what Amos is telling them is, uh, no, 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 no. God punishes God's enemies. Whoever is wicked, that, those are the people who will be harmed. And so... Amos has to keep on debunking their assumptions. Plus, the people would say, look, and we bring sacrifices, and we keep Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh and all the, all the Torah's rituals. We're doing great. That's what Amos was up against. People who were very smug, felt that they were chosen because they were Israel, because they were wealthy, because there was peace, plus because they were bringing offerings and serving God. What more can God possibly want of us? Answer, oh, moral behavior. Right? In fact, Amos, like several other prophets, does what he has to do in this circumstance. He equates the people of Israel to the people of Sodom. For the same reason. The people of Sodom are famed for being incredibly immoral, and so God punished them. So now he's saying, you're like that. Something that happened in Amos' time, by the way, that he predicted, that was one of his big claims to fame, is the biggest biblical earthquake ever. Around 760 BCE it was. We have evidence of the earthquake. Geologists have found it as well. It was a massive earthquake in the time of Uziyahu, ballpark 760 BCE. And the reason why Tanakh makes a big deal about it as opposed to poor Israel, you know, with all of its problems, right? It's a teeny tiny land that has always been surrounded by very hostile people. Plus it's on an earthquake fault, right? There are earthquakes all the time in Sfat and the Jordan Valley. Those are the most common, common places where earthquakes will strike. Once in a while, when they're really big, they hit Yerushalayim, they hit Jerusalem also. That's what happened in Uziyahu's time. So that's why Tanakh remembers that one as the greatest of them all. That one hit Jerusalem. So Amos uses earthquake imagery repeatedly through his book because they lived through one. And it was something that had a huge, made a huge impression on everybody. Yeah. Um, this mind about you will only have a single level of heaven. It takes a pride in it. I think we're God and stuff. 
because what we have had in hand is a brief. A brief is contract. If any party violates the terms of the contract, all bets are off. Correct. Put it in colloquial language. You're right. They shouldn't feel so like, oh, I've got it made because they've forgotten an important aspect of what the relationship is. No, you are certainly right, and Amos would definitely approve of, of your message. Unfortunately, the people totally missed it. Yeah. Totally. Right. They thought he was crazy. They, they didn't understand. It's like, what are you talking about? We're doing great. Everything is fine. There's no imminent danger at all. And Amos says, you don't get it. There's a huge imminent danger with the Assyrians, and they're going to be your, they're going to make you like Saddam. They're going, to, they're going to come rolling right in. Bad things will happen. The very end of the book finally sets out what Amos is really all about. It's the iciest book, by the way, of all the prophets. It's just icy judgment on Israel and all, all the other nations. There's nothing about it that's different. 98% of the book is that. This, that nation, particularly Israel, immoral. God, therefore, will mete out justice, specifically through the Assyrians, who are going to roll in and wipe out everybody, which is what the Assyrians did. And there's no difference between Israel and the other nations. It's all part of humanity. It's the Elohim. It's the creator God. And that's what we have in the very final passages of the book in source six over here. To me, O Israelites, you are just like the Ethiopians, declares the Lord. Now, do you think you're the chosen people? Let me tell you something. You're like everybody else. True, I bought is- brought Israel up from the land of Egypt. Okay, yeah, you have me there. I know the Exodus, Pesach. I do have a special relationship, but watch this, says God. But I also brought up the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir. When you're behaving the way that you're behaving, the exodus is meaningless. Other nations have been redeemed too, and you know what? I was involved, says God. This is just about as low-hitting as it can be. God himself is negating the value of the exodus here. He's saying if you're not living up to the covenant, who cares about the exodus? It doesn't mean anything. It's a nice historical event 3,500 or so years ago. What's that got to do with you? The covenant itself is violated, right? Behold, the Lord God has his eye upon the sinful kingdom. I will wipe it off the face of the earth. Meaning, God is equal opportunity punisher. Any nation that sins is vulnerable to divine wrath. That's Amos' whole message. But then, here comes the kicker. Mid-verse, watch, watch this little shift But I will not wholly wipe out the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the order and shake the house of Israel through all the nations as one shakes sand in a sieve, and not a pebble falls to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall perish by the sword who boast. Never shall the evil overtake us or come near us. In that day, I will set up, the fall, set up again the fallen booth of David. Some people have the custom to say, comes from this verse. right? I will mend its breaches and set its ruins anew. I will build it firm as in the days of old. Amos fakes this out here, because this is the only part of the book, the very, very end, where suddenly you get a glimpse of the Adonai. The whole book is Elohim. The whole book is about God, the transcendent deity of justice. God demands fair behavior from everybody. Nobody's been fair lately. Everybody's in trouble. That's the whole book. The last few verses say, even though you deserve to be completely wiped out like Sodom, I'm not going to do that, because I love you too much. All of a sudden, divine love peaks forth in the book of Amos, which is shocking given how much the book is not about divine love. But here suddenly it's there. God's relationship with Israel is eternal. And so what will happen is God will root out the negative elements of Israel, but there will always be a restoration. Now what's amazing about these two books is that these were the very last two prophets of the northern kingdom of Israel. If you want to just note the chronology here, you have Elijah the prophet, then his student Elisha, his student Jonah, 
And then right after them come Amos and Hosea, the last two known prophets of the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos only prophesied during the reign of Uzziahu, meaning he was probably dead by the time of the exile of the, of the northern kingdom in the year 722 BCE. But Hosea prophesied down to the reign of Chizkiah, or Hezekiah, in, where we say it in English, who was the king at the time of the exile. It's quite plausible that Hosea was either killed or exiled at the time of the exile of the ten tribes. Their voices went out, and with it, the ten lost tribes became lost, right? The Assyrians, by the way, I spoke about my animosity toward them. I'm a very gentle fellow, by the way, but it doesn't matter. I, I have quite a lot of ruthless animosity toward truly vicious people, such as the Assyrians. The Assyrians actually harmed a greater percentage of the people of Israel than any people in our history, including Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany got a third of us, which is a beyond horrifying. The Assyrians exiled 10 out of 12 tribes who are still gone, plus they devastated most of the south, the two remaining tribes. They actually got a much higher percentage of our people. Much higher. Hmm? They dispersed the people. Okay, but they're gone. In other words, as of today, I mean, yeah, you have Michael Freund and all of his Hebra doing fantastic work trying to find little pockets of people who might be parts of lost tribes, which is beyond miraculous, and it's such an incredible thing that he and his organization is doing, and others as well. Who is it? Michael Freund, who was one grade ahead of me at Ramaz, and now he's in Israel, Shaveh Yisrael, doing very good work over there. You can read all his stuff on the Jerusalem Post. He's a columnist there as well, and that's where I get to read about all his good work. So the amazing thing about the prophets Hosea and Moses, that is, with many prophets, they were abject failures in their lifetime. Right? Nobody repented, or at least not enough. There hardly was a sea change in behavior on behalf of the people. And sure enough, one generation after Amos, and during Hosea's lifetime, the Assyrians completely trounced Aram, moved up to Israel's doorstep, and in short order exiled the ten tribes and smashed most of the south into radioactive grit. It really devastated the people of Israel like nobody else before or after. And this is what Amos and Isaiah were desperately warning about, but again, it didn't always happen. The miracle of these two prophets is, here we are, not only learning them, but continuing to long for the return of these ten lost tribes who were lost over 2,700 years ago. It's an incredible thing that these two prophets have been able to implant in us, along with other prophets, this eternal hope and dream that one day we'll see that it really was a separation and not a divorce. That's something that we pray for and at least in pockets, get to see a little bit in our time. On that happy note, it is such a pleasure to, to be back with you. I've been missing this immensely. It feels like many, many years since we have last reconvened, but at least now we'll pick up the pace a little bit, because, for example, see you next week. Looking forward. Next week we'll be doing the 7th century BCE prophets.